The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On today's episode, we're discussing moral relativity. Is being good an innate component of the human condition? Or is morality just a story we tell ourselves, rather than a set of rules we must follow? To help us rethink moral relativity, we're joined by psychologist Simone Chanel, philosopher Ray Langton, and anthropologist Joel Robbins. So as soon as we are in the position of evaluating social morality by some higher norms, wherever they might come from, we know social morality can't be all there is to it. There's got to be something more. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate... Hilary Lawson. Thank you. Most of us like the idea of being good, or at least being seen to be good. Or many of us think that being moral is an essential part of being human. And that's the question that we're going to be addressing today. Is being moral an essential part of being human? Because what we take to be good differs from person to person, culture to culture. Well, we have uh, with us a very distinguished panel to debate this very salient topic. Uh, Simone Schnall is director of the Cambridge Body, Mind and Behaviour Laboratory. Ray Langton is the Knightbridge Professor of uh, Philosophy at Cambridge and head of faculty there. And Joel Robbins is an American social anthropologist and he's written widely about the morality in Papua New Guinea society. So is morality just a story that we tell ourselves, uh, or is it um, something that describes an objective set of rules out there? So let me begin, first of all, with Simone. Is morality just a story? Absolutely not. It's very much part of the social fabric, the fabric of society. It is something that we process whenever we meet somebody for the first time. We do that within milliseconds. We decide whether, for example, somebody is trustworthy. So it's one of the first things we want to assess in terms of wanting to engage with a person or not, staying away from them. 
So it, it, it's clear, it, in my mind, it, it's not just a story. It's something very, very profound. And in that context, I'd like to uh, refer some work that I find quite influential by Robin Dunbar. He's proposed what he calls the social brain hypothesis. And with that, he says that, uh, well, uh, for one thing, the brain evolved to keep track of social relationships, social situations, and more specifically, the people that we're close to, people that we can trust. And he proposes that language, in fact, evolved as a means of keeping track of reputations, keeping track of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who you should avoid, who sh you should not engage with because they might be liars, cheaters, murderers, and so on. So he's basically saying that language evolved for the purpose of gossip. So gossip being the idea that as a community we keep track of people's reputations. And I think nowadays um, reputations are more important than ever or they're more relevant than ever. If we think of the ways in which information now can be spread, so it's not just word of mouth, or you're whispering to somebody that, you know, Joel has been up to some no good, right? <laughs> I mean, and then, of course, if that's the case, we all whisper to each other, and we might not treat them in the way, in the same way as we otherwise might. But now, of course, we all have that megaphone of social media. These kind of inf these pieces of information can spread in no time, and they can be quite destructive. So it's it's very much a reality. It's not just a story that we tell ourselves. Thank you, Simone. Ray. I agree with Simone that morality is not just a story we tell ourselves. Though I do agree we do tell lots of stories <coughs> to ourselves and lots of our stories about our own moral uh, motivations might be fabricated. But uh, morality is not just about the social fabric either. And here's where I might part ways with uh, Simone. It transcends both the social and it transcends the individual. So morality is... Uh, the point at which we get to think about someone other than ourselves, uh, we get to think, we get to escape the prison of the self and think about what's going on in other people and what matters to them. And uh, although uh, Hillary mentioned that morality is different all over the world and there are many different moral practices, first of all, we need to distinguish what people take morality to be and what morality is. So what we take morality to be is one thing, and sometimes that might be mistaken. And what morality is might be another, and sometimes we might get it right, sometimes not. In so at some points, um, morality is going to um, involve factors that are common across many different cultures. I'll just mention, despite the agreement about that many diverse practices, there are certain common threads. One common thread that is there in morality as it is, and in morality as a social practice, is uh, a commitment to um, uh, something like empathy, something like putting yourself in other people's shoes, something like understanding how things are from the viewpoint of someone else. That's there in Buddhist views about compassion. It's there in the golden rule that says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's there, uh, and that golden rule, by the way, has versions in uh, nearly every major religion. Jesus wasn't the first to utter it. Um, it was also, also there uh, in uh, Judaic uh, 
um, principles before that. And there are versions of it um, in uh, Chinese uh, ethics and philosophy, Taoism, and elsewhere as well. And I'm no anthropologist, I'm a philosopher, but I, want to I do want to suggest that there is a common thread which involves um, um, a willingness to step outside the self and realize that other people matter in the way that we do. Now, it's sometimes called the golden rule. This gets to the second part of the statement, but I actually don't think it is so much a rule as a matter of uh, a way of understanding how things are for other people. Understanding um, uh, which begins with our friends and family uh, and then goes further. Aristotle said that a friend is another self and, and you can understand things that are going on with, with your friends and what matters to them and you care about that and do things that are in their interest. That's where morality um, begins uh, with people that are close to us. Um, and in a way, morality is about expanding that circle so that that kind of understanding goes much further. It's not so much a rule as a kind of um, understanding which helps us motivate ourselves to do uh, something more than we otherwise would do. Thank you, Simone. Joel. Thanks. Um, so we've been asked an either-or question. Is morality just a story we tell ourselves or is it a set of rules we have to follow? And I'm going to do a kind of old trick and answer yes to the either-or question. Um, it, I think it's both. It is a story. And we do have to follow the rules. So the sense in which it's a story is that for everyone, their own sense of what counts as moral, as how you be a human being, as how you relate to others beyond yourself, is absolutely shaped by the culture they, they grow up in, the culture they live around, the stories that they're exposed to. Whatever intuitions they may have on a pan-human level, instincts or impulses, that those only make sense to people through the cultural stories that they have, and they only know how to express them effectively to others around them through various cultural templates. We also know it's a story in that, in the sense, the very broad sense we're using it, because it really does vary across cultures, and it can vary pretty extensively. So just to put some anthropology on the table, um, and we'd have to discuss it at more length what it means, but it's it's found in a lot of Papua New Guinea societies. There are 700 languages in New Guinea, so you can't generalize for everyone. Um, a very strong view that you can never know what's going on in another person's mind. It's, it's actually impossible, but it's also very unethical to try. And it's completely unethical ever to, to verbalize what somebody else might be thinking. And so certainly empathy, um, they, they're very strong on sympathy, on feeling for another person, on saying, if I were in that situation, I would feel terrible, and so I feel bad for you. But, but if we take empathy to be feeling with another person, that's actually profoundly unethical there. And people, uh, and we have studies of little children who do spontaneously try to do that, being taught, you don't do that, that's not something we do. Um, so the, the differences go quite, quite deep. So it is a story. The second half of the question, are they rules we have to follow? Most people in their own lives are, uh, uh, um, Hillary used the phrase, moral realists. In their own lives, they think their moral rules are, are substantial and real and, and binding. They're binding in the sense not that you have to follow them, but that, in you know, that you know, and this comes back to Simone's point about reputation, that if you don't follow them, you will be judged for them. You're subject to evaluation. You have to orient to the rules that are out there in your surrounding world in order to function as a social creature. Do you, you don't always have to be good, that's why gossip is interesting, but you do 
you do to become, to be a social person and to survive as a social person, you have to orient to the rules. So they are stories. They are stories that we tell ourselves, but we also live with them as real, socially speaking, because that's how we make lives together. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let, let's begin by just trying to get clear <coughs> what uh, everyone on the panel understands by morality, and particularly this idea of moral facts. So, Joel, do you think in the light of what you've said there that moral facts are out there in reality, or, or, or are they not out there in reality? Is it a social phenomenon? Yeah. So I think that for everyone in their own social life, they are out there in reality because they are a social phenomenon. That is, I experience the, the moral rules of my culture, even the kind of fairly low-level rules of etiquette that are governing our conversation is absolutely real and is, as I'm not, I am not able to change them. I could disregard them, but then I would be subject to evaluation for doing that. Looking cross-culturally as an anthropologist in terms of a really real that transcends the social worlds any of us live in, um, then I would argue that no, they are, there are not moral facts out there in a, in a straightforward sense. Okay, so, so Ray, they, uh, account from Joel, M moral, moral facts are things that feels real to us within a social context, but, the, but they're not ultimately out there. Do you agree with that? Uh, so I want to agree with Joel that uh, the social norms that we live in, or S Simone's phrase, the social fabric that is, that is part of our lives, this is completely real. And social norms are where we have to build our lives. So I'm a realist about the social norms, but I think that moral norms go further. And we all agree about that when we think about it, when we reflect on past social norms that were bad, when we think that at one point it was considered completely okay uh, to use other human beings as slaves, or it was completely um, desirable to exterminate certain uh, groups of people because they were subhuman. Now, we can't think that morality is just social morality um, and think that uh, and uh, then with that uh, go along and uh, swallow the consequence that that social morality is as good as any other. Of course we can't. So as soon as we are in the position of evaluating social morality by some higher norms, wherever they might come from, we know social morality can't be all there is to it. There's got to be something more. Some people will think that something more comes from religion. I don't think so. I think that even religion has to think that... Uh, if God is doing any job, he's helping us find out what's, uh, what's out there, morally speaking. Um, so the, so uh, moral norms are something to be answerable to, both for ourselves as individuals and for us as a whole society. And that's how moral progress is possible. And that's how we can do better than we did before. Uh, again, if we work together with it, uh, with each other. And uh, the reputational uh, issue is actually a two, a, a, it's actually a two, it, it has its bad side as well as its good side. In the days of slavery, in the days of it, when there's xenophobia, when there's in-group, out-group hostility, genocide, your reputation depends on what is being, uh, on your being immoral. So uh, we can't as align morality with uh, reputation. Morality is something more, and that's, thank that's uh, you know, uh, something to be very thankful for because that enables us to make the world a better place. Uh, how, I mean, how do you then, if moral facts are in some sense ultimately out there, 
How would you account for the fact that different people and different cultures come to different accounts of these facts? I mean, isn't your version of those facts, aren't you just asserting your version uh, over, over their notion of, of what their moral facts are? I'm asserting, a, so take the examples I had, slavery, genocide. That is not asserting my version of moral facts. That's uh, bringing to bear a collective lesson that we have learned um, by thinking hard about things and by recognizing the humanity in other people. That is objective as you like. We are all here together and we all matter equally. That is objective. That's what's objective. I'm not talking about Plato's heaven. I'm not talking about something weird and mysterious. I've had conversations with Hillary before and he's tried to make me seem like some naive, uh, superstitious person <laughs> in thinking that, um, in thinking that uh, morality uh, or, and truth transcends anything that we come up with just on our own, but we can get better at it. And I think as soon as we reflect on our own um, uh, on our own moral thinking, we find that that is in fact what we're aspiring to all the time. Jim. Oh, I think I've answered the. Oh, I, uh, but would you? Uh, oh, would, would you? I, uh, would I? Um, similar. Would I come to version? similar conclusions? I, I would have a bit different. Um, I'm not. Um, I'm. I'm not. Um, sanguine about finding a metric for improvement that holds across, uh, but I understand the impulse, but I'm, I, um, are we improving the lives of individuals? Are we improving the lives of communities? I think different communities peg their moralities to different ultimate values, and I think some of those are in genuine competition with, with each other, even across cultures. So my version of a conversation about improvement would be to explore pretty thoroughly various possible versions of morality, and then at least for our home use, decide what we could learn from all of them and where we would want to stand. That would be our home project, but whether we could ever legislate for other societies, what would count as improvement in their terms, I'm, 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 less, I'm probably less confident than you are that I know the standard. So Simone, where do you stand on this issue about whether moral facts are out there? Uh, there really are two parts to that question. First of all, how do we arrive at what we consider moral reality? And in our work, we find that people make moral judgments when they look at others, look at their behavior, decide what is right and wrong, and in particular, what is wrong. Uh, they rely on feelings. They rely on emotions. Um, so there's all kinds of considerations, incidental factors. So for example, in some experiments, we've induced uh, physical disgust and gave participants various uh, moral questions. How bad is it to falsify your CV? How bad is it to engage in all kinds of other kind of questionable behaviors? And when people happen to be feeling physically disgusted simply because there's a bad smell in the room, for example, then they say, you know what, falsifying your CV is really, really bad. So it's as if people interpret their bodily sensations, their feelings as indicative of what is moral reality. So to the person, it may feel very real. You know, if we set up these experiments, of course, we can in a way mislead people into, um, well, changing their moral reality. So I think that's one, one aspect in terms of where does this reality come from. And the other is about um, 
well, again, uh, going back to, to reputations in terms of, well, what matters probably most is what, what people think about each other. So whether it's true or not, but once you are in a situation where others think of you as a not very moral person, that, that becomes very much a reality for you. So in, in some way, um, this reality is not necessarily based on facts, but once, especially in the negative domain, if, if your reputation is tarnished, if, if people think of you in negative ways, it, it's very much real. So you've described the way in which our moral judgments change according to our emotions. Mm -hmm. That would seem to indicate that you're on the side of thinking that moral, what we take of as being morally real is not out there. It's a function of what's happening to us. Is, is, is that? Um, that's right. On some level, that's right. But we nevertheless r respond or we, we in a way, our feelings reflect whatever those rules out there are. So we are very much aware of what we're supposed to be doing or what others are supposed to be doing. And we take that as a standard, as a moral standard. And many of these standards are probably uh, reasonably university, like the golden rule that Ray mentioned earlier. So, so the rules may not always, or uh, the standards may not always be the same, but we acknowledge them as being part of the life we should be leading. So is, is that a problem for you, Ray, the issue about uh, w our emotional response to a situation changes our moral judgments? So I find absolutely fascinating the sort of work that uh, Simone and her colleagues are doing about the sensitivity of our, our moral and evaluative judgments to circumstantial things, including like whether there's a bad smell in the room. I think that... Um, there are different ways you can uh, think about uh, what's, uh, wh what our moral emotions are doing. Uh, but first of all, I want to remind you of something I said at the outset, which is uh, morality and what we think is moral are two c different things. Uh, they, can, they can be in harmony or they can be mismatched. And that's how we know there's such a thing as moral error. We know that people have made moral mistakes and sometimes we think that we ourselves have made moral mistakes. So um, I don't think any uh, conclusion about our moral judgments uh, is ever going to uh, bear on whether morality c is independent because um, of, of the fact that we know we can make mistakes. Um, but I think that what uh, Simone's talking about is really interesting and important. Uh, it, um, another way to um, show that... Um, uh, so what it's important for is um, helping us uh, understand the contingent things that we're sensitive to when we come up with moral judgments. This is hugely important in, you know, practical politics as well as in, um, as as well as in our, you know, daily lives with our f our friends and families and so forth. Um, so if when certain things trigger disgust, she talks about there being a smell in the room. I work in philosophy of language. I know that certain uses of language can trigger disgust certain uses of language where members of certain groups, uh, so in Rwanda, the Inyenzi, uh, the, the, uh, the word Inyenzi was used to describe certain people, and that means cockroach. So you're using certain uh, uh, disgust-laden words to refer to other people. That is going to affect your moral judgment about how what they're worth. 
That doesn't mean that that's what they're really worth. It doesn't mean that the Tutsis were really uh, worth um, less because they were being thought of as like cockroaches. They were being worth. They were. They were uh, worth just the same as everybody else. What really matters and what we take to matter are two different things. This is so important because it means uh, we. The social framework itself is. Including the linguistic framework is important, is a is a resource for us, and the resource can be made good or bad. Just like uh, our literacy in for reading and writing as a resource, there's a kind of moral literacy, and the social fabric can help or harm that. And by the way, this issue about sensitivity to context is also there for things that no one would be subjectivist about. So uh, our judgments about mathematics are sensitive to contexts, uh, not to bad smells, as far as I know though maybe they are, they're certainly sensitive to framing effects. So if your doctor uh, tells you patients who have this medicine, 1% of them uh, die, patients who have this medicine, 99% of them survive, exactly the same fact, but, f but framing effects uh, make you treat them completely differently. So mathematical facts are independent of our judgments and so are moral facts. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So what would you say if we had a gathering, if you were addressing a gathering of ISIS supporters here, who believed that they were acting in accordance with the word of God, and they had profoundly different views than you did about certain behaviours, would you just say... You've just got the moral facts wrong, guys. Um, you haven't seen how it is, really. Are you asking what I would think or what I would say? Of course I would not say that. That would be a completely stupid thing to say. You know, when you're having a moral disagreement with somebody, I mean, and this, this actually brings out something really important, which is that um, sometimes we think morality is about this uh, shared understanding of, of the humanity of each other um, and how that motivates us to care about each other and transcend uh, our selfish interests. But other aspects of morality are taken to be uh, about honor or pollution or my country matters more than anything else. And it's a real question whether that actually belongs to morality. So one serious worry is the harnessing of the rhetoric of morality to stuff that is not actually morality at all. That's what I think is going on with certain moral views, including those of ISIS, which you mentioned. But would I say that? Of course not. That's not a good way to get a conversation going. You start from what you have in common and work from there. Okay. So Moving on then to a question of whether science can offer us uh, any help in understanding uh, morality. Do we think that the accounts either of behavioral science or social science can somehow uncover the nature of morality? Joe. Um, I'll, 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 I'm going to separate the social sciences and the hard sciences or whatever we want to call them for, for purposes of answering. 
I do think the social sciences can help us understand the range of moral positions that are out there, the range, I mean, I've said this already, so I'll be brief about it, the range of moral frameworks and the range of kind of very high-level values different societies can hold and that, that that is an important part of our conversation. There's also definitely an interest now in our own social world in the possibility of hard science accounts of morality. And, uh, you know, if you've been to an airport bookstore, you know this. Um, what I want to ask about that is why is that story important to us now? What would it mean to us to have a scientific account of morality that we could take as true? Does that mean that we'd always know what to do? Does it mean we'd know what's excusable and what's not excusable? Do even the kinds of things, Simone, that you study, does that change our notion of responsibility? Would, will gossip ever turn into something where you say, well, so-and-so did something really awful, but of course it really smelled badly just before they did. No, no, I'm not. It's possible. We could change. You could see an advertising mm. campaign for air freshener that aims to <laughs> add moral improvement. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but as an anthropologist, I'd be interested. Right. To, but yes. what do we want? What would we, why are we interested in the hard science account of morality now? And what could it do for us? And, and I'm just going to give one speculation on that. that uh, it's totally speculation, you know, made up on the train. But Sometimes I, I feel like now we would like to know that inside we are good people, that we have evolved to have some good impulses toward, toward empathy, towards compassion, et cetera, et cetera. That seems to me to be replacing a story that was pretty popular in our cultural context that people are kind of inherently bad and that morality is an overcoming of human nature rather than an expression of it. And what is it then about our current times where it would be reassuring to think that we didn't have to overcome ourselves? What is it about the society we live in, about its scale, about the difficulty of knowing about the consequences of your actions, about the difficulty of knowing whether doing good locally means it's going to do good globally? Do we live in a world that's so complex in terms of the actions that we, the effects of our actions, that it would be reassuring to think that somehow we are just built to be good, because I do think it, it is tending toward a new kind of story, and, and as an anthropologist, it would be interesting to know why that story is catching on now. I, I just want to push you a little bit more and yeah. say, do you think that science is able to, or, or, or is potentially able, to cast light on what our morality is? I think science is perfectly capable of casting light on, on some of the tools that are used in building our moral systems. I do think that's true. I think it's important to know about situational factors and how people act. I think it's important to know what our capacities are for things like empathy and compassion. I am skeptical that it could ever give us a full story and a usable story. I mean, but that's what I'm asking. What are the uses we would put it to? I'm, I doubt we will ever in the end be satisfied in a story that reduces our, our, our both our moral concerns and our moral behavior to something like a physical account of what we are as organisms. So, Simone, do you think science can provide us with an account of morality? Absolutely. I, I, I could almost say that that's, that's all I'm going to say. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, at the end, it's an empirical question in terms of, you know, what do people consider moral? How do they treat others that are immoral, what is moral behavior, and so on. And in terms of 
I think going back towards moral reality and so on, what, what should be moral? Again, I would say it's, it's about the social situation. It's about um, what others think of us in particular. So a lot of, I mean, of course, what science often does, at least in my field, is empirical. So you run an experiment, see how people behave. So just as a thought experiment, think about two possible things that could be true about you. Either you killed another person, so you're a murderer, but nobody knows about it, or everybody thinks you're a murderer, but it, you didn't actually do it. And of course, that's you know an <laughs> impossible choice to make on some level, but once you think it through, whenever I pose that question to, to people or colleagues, the initial intuition is, no, of course I don't want to be a murderer. I mean, it's the most horrendous thing you can think of. It's the worst crime in a way that, that we can think of. But then, well, if people think you have committed the worst possible crime, that in a way is social death, right? You no longer are a respect, no, never mind respected member of society, you no longer exist in society. You get locked away. We, we lock away criminals, we eliminate them from society. So, so in that sense, it, it's worth running these experiments, even thought experiments, to think through, okay, what do people respond to? What are the moral considerations that we all share? Right. Science can provide a complete account of morality. Well, I want to remind you that um, at Cambridge, the philosophy degree used to be called the moral sciences tripos. So, of course, morality uh, can be a science because it's a science itself. Um, and uh, the motivation behind that description was that certain parts of ethics do involve reasoning. And many people think the golden rule is itself a form of reasoning. So in that sense of science, uh, of course, um, in other senses of science, by which we're talking about empirical sciences of the kind that uh, uh, Joel and Simona are involved in, I also want to say I think it can shed a huge amount of light on our moral lives. Um, we, we find out about how uh, other cultures reason morally. That's hugely important. Uh, we find out uh, about what affects our motivation. That's hugely important too. Um, and one thing that it does is sort of chastens the ambitions of philosophy to say, oh, it is all just a matter of reasoning, which it isn't. Um, um, and um, two very important bits of empirical work have affected our views in ethics. Um, so, for instance, the, um, the, the sorry, the uh, Milgram experiments, where um, subjects uh, forced huge electric shocks on someone simply because a man in a white coat said please raise the current, the experiment must go on. This was very shocking uh, to, the to the experimental subjects, I'm sure, but also you know, to our, our conception of morality because it shows that we're more sensitive to authority than to reason in certain contexts. Another one is this would be the Stanford prison experiments where we learn very uh, sadly about how quickly we um, take on the roles of the oppressor rather than the oppressed when the occasion is there. And so this... Um, should chasten our sense of how we um, structure a society to help people be moral. We can't just assume that, oh, it, everyone, as soon as everyone's thinking clearly, they'll do the right thing. No, it's, it's not as simple as that. But uh, there's something that science is always going to miss because science tells us a story about how things are 
and morality is about how things should be. And so you're never going to get straightforwardly from how things are to how things should be. Um, and that's the domain um, where um, morality has its scope. So, um, yeah. Simone, so science doesn't, it's not capable of getting the sort of should into morality. That's probably true. I think the job of science is not to do that. It's to, to document what people do, to try to understand what people do, to try to predict, just like any other science. The idea is prediction in a way, that you understand the factors well enough that you, uh, you know what might happen. Of course, with social behavior, that's um, extremely difficult. But nevertheless, in a way, that is the ultimate goal of, of science. Whether that, it, uh, uh, but I agree. I mean, that doesn't mean that that's how things should be. And science should strive towards improving the human condition, improving the lives of as much as humanity as possible. So it's really about what is descriptive as opposed to normative. Science, probably for the most part, can only be descriptive. I, if we can't agree between sort of cultures and even, even within. A, a culture on our moral positions, might we not be better just to abandon moral language altogether? Joe. Uh, mm. sure. <laughs> um, uh, speaking empirically, uh, I, I don't think that that's possible. I think human beings are evaluative creatures. I think it's built in to all of our interactions with each other. It's built into even the design of them, that we ask questions of each other, we make judgments of each other. As a thought experiment, we could imagine whether abandoning moral language would free us in some way, or would get us closer to reality in some way. But I don't think that it's an empirical possibility. So, then, so, the, so I would have a sort of your straightforward answer that morality is empirical. I do actually think that empirically speaking, we are evaluative creatures. Morality is built into how we interact and form societies together. And so it, it, it won't go away whether we think it should or not. Is there an implicit thought there that maybe it would be better? But we can't because you, you, your, yeah, answer, you, your, yeah. your answer to the question is, well, no, um, we just can't give it up. But, but, but maybe it would be better. I mean, don't yeah, no, I, well, so that's interesting. I guess I haven't thought very far in it because I can't hardly imagine us doing it. But I suppose I would say, no, I don't think it's better because I think as people who are accountable to other people and who are held and who hold other people to account, we live better lives. And, and I think that's universal. I'm an anthropologist. I just said something's universal. <laughs> it's, on, it, it's on tape. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so that's it. My career is over now. But, yeah. uh, but, um, but um, I, do, I do actually think our lives are better for that. What we hold yeah. each other accountable for, how we judge each other, varies a lot. I think that variation is actually a rich resource for anybody's thinking who wants to examine it. But I also do think that if, if I somehow could wave a wand and make that stop, I would not. So, so, Ray, I mean, obviously, we all tend to think that, you know, being good is a good thing. So I want to, as it were, elaborate the reverse thought to respond to. So um, often people will do things on the basis that they see what they're doing as being good but they can do some terrible things on the basis of claiming that they're good, and they can go to war on the basis that both sides are good. Uh, in the First World War, both, 
both of the soldiers in the trenches were uh, prayed to the same God and see that, that, that they were doing good. So wouldn't we be just better to give up this language and, and just talk about the actual outcomes? So there's just a huge jump between the thing you first said and the thing you said last. I mean, there's a... So I completely agree with you that righteousness is a source of great evil, by which I mean that the kind of self-righteousness that is so confident in, in the rightness of one's own cause that it doesn't listen, it doesn't take into account what, what anyone else uh, might say or whether anyone else might matter. And in fact, some empirical work by uh, Baumeister is, uh, he wrote a book about evil, and one whole chapter is about you know the righteousness of, there's more bad things done for righteous motivations, probably, than for completely selfish motivations. I don't know. That's an empirical question that's, uh, you know, above my pay grade. But uh, that, why should that mean that we should give up? Or could, I completely agree with Joel that we couldn't give up. Um, and I'd want to add that it's not just an empirical matter because there's a practical issue for all of us. How am I going to live? Mm. And that question, which goes back to the ancient philosophers, how am I going to live, is a, is a moral question. How am I going to live? How am I going to live my life? That's at the level of, of the individual. And then I agree with Joel, there's the, how am I going to be answerable to others? How are others answerable uh, to me? And so there's, I don't think that this is just a contingent fact about uh, social anthropology, though I agree that it's true. I think that um, it's, it's a fact about us the last one is about us being social animals. The first one is about us being agents. We're agents and we're social animals. So we can't escape morality. And of course we shouldn't. So how do we avoid that righteous problem that you, that if we think that there is a, a, a moral good, that we're prepared to do all sorts of terrible things in support of it? Well, that gets back to what I was saying before about um, the social resources that enable um, um, un the kind of understanding that is actually at the heart of morality. So those um, sort of righteousness in the cause of evil, so fanaticism that involves mass murder or genocide, um, this is not morality. Um, if anyone thinks it's morality, then that involves an error. Um, and so how do you guard against that sort of error? That's a big question about how you guard against errors generally, and it involves social resources, uh, just as um, other forms of, of literacy, if you like, uh, involve resources as well. It involves so much more than anything we can just do on our own. So, Simon, do you think uh, we, should, we can value this moral language? should value it? Uh, well, well, first of all, uh, with respect to the early question of should we get rid of morality or could we get rid of morality? Well, absolutely not. It would be mayhem, absolute mayhem, if everybody could just do whatever the hell they want. So it is built in, probably on even some biological level, or very, very basic level, that human societies need morality of some sort. Now, the tricky part is, of course, this issue of what if there are people, or th the righteousness, right? What if some people strongly believe that what they're doing is moral when it clearly is not, when it harms others, when it is unfair, and so on. So these are pretty universal principles. So how do you persuade others that they're wrong, basically, on a moral level? I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. Perhaps one way of at least trying to address it is 
again through science to try by trying to understand what is it that lets people make certain moral decisions, engage in certain moral behaviors, and then educating people systematically to say, listen, you know, you may not be as rational as you think you are. Or there is this whole phenomenon of being morally righteous where all of us, you know, always think that we're doing the right thing. So so think about that. Go back and think about it and to basically use the empirical work to say, listen, here is how things really work. You may think that you're doing the right thing, but at least consider that that's not necessarily the right thing. Whether that'll be effective, of course, is a question, but that, that may be the only thing one can practically do. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.